This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Providing innovative neonatology solutions for more than 35 years, Chiesi is committed to supporting the neonatology community and the NICU families you serve. To learn more, visit www.nicuconnections.com slash incubator. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbo. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the last day of NeoHeart coverage. Um, Saturday. What a week. What a week Man, we've had. It's humbling to see. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I think no matter what you say, we're still working in silos and we're still not completely aware of all the great work being done out there. And so when we get to just do a little... Um, little tour of what's being done in and around the country and the world on specific disease processes. It's humbling to see the work that people are putting out. And it's a reminder of why conferences are so powerful, right? It just reinvigorates you for the work and the exciting things to come. Um, yeah, I could not agree with you more. Um, today we have, today we have, um, somebody that, uh, we're going to need you to uh, dial the volume up for because uh, she is uh, she's talking about intricate things and mm-hmm. pulmonary hypertension and preterm lung injury. Uh, we have the pleasure of having on with us Jennifer Sucre, who's an assistant professor of pediatrics and cell and development biology at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. She graduated from Harvard Med School, trained in pediatrics at Washington University in St. Louis. She completed her fellowship in neonatal and perinatal medicine at UCLA, and she joined the faculty at Vanderbilt in 2016. She has established a research program focused on understanding the molecular mechanisms of lung development and lung disease across the lifespan of a particular focus and the particular focus on developing novel 4D imaging approaches to study the alveologenesis and on understanding molecular drivers of bronchopulmonary dysplasia. Her clinical experience in treating premature infants provides her with a unique perspective for studying lung development, and she has cultivated new ex vivo, in vitro, and in vivo models of lung injury. Uh, Dr. Sucre has combined these models with single-cell biology and spatial transcriptomics to gain insights into cellular specialization and dynamics in the developing lung, elucidated age-related, age-regulated host susceptibility factors to SARS-CoV-2 infection, and defined previously unrecognized cell types in chronic respiratory diseases. As I said, Brace yourselves and uh, pay attention. Uh, well, thankfully, thankfully, she's going to tell us what that all means. Yes, yeah. she's a great educator, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so don't 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 worry. But thank you, uh, thank you for uh, being on with us, Dr. Sucre, and I'm just going to say that again. Uh, join us in welcoming Dr. Jen Sucre to the podcast. Dr. Jennifer Sucre, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Thanks for having me. It's really great to join you guys. So you are talking at Neoheart this week, 
a topic that is a bit daunting uh, for all of us <laughs> always. Novel disease modifying therapy for pulmonary hypertension after preterm lung injury. Um, is this, I mean, we all have weird passions. Is this a passion of yours, uh, pulmonary hypertension in preterm kids? Uh, sure. I would say that understanding the abnormal lung development after preterm birth in general is a passion of mine. And um, my the entire spark for my research program happened when I was a fellow at UCLA. And in one call night, admitted two different babies, born both born at 28 weeks. And one of those babies um, did really well and is only remarkable by the contrast. So very quickly, weaned to Rumer, went home just before his original due date. And I would maybe see him at follow-up clinic, but otherwise a really uncomplicated course. And this other 28-weeker um, had a really severe underdeveloped lungs, a horrendous NICU course, was intubated for two months, went home at 10 months of age, was this wow. very old baby in the NICU on a lot of oxygen. And I would see his family in the hospital all the time because he had really severe lung disease. And in addition to the lung disease component, had very severe pulmonary hypertension. And so um, the that led me you know, to think that gestational age wasn't the only issue with bronchopulmonary dysplasia or chronic lung disease of prematurity. And so from that, as a fellow, I was in Bridget Gompert's lab where I was doing a postdoc and really started thinking about what were the molecular mechanisms driving abnormal lung development and by extension, what drives normal lung development and how could we, how could we write the ship? So preterm birth is a big it's like a bomb going off in the lung. There's um, too much oxygen, there's mechanical ventilation, there's infection. So what could we learn from normal lung development that would help us write the ship? So from that, um, I'm now in my seventh year as faculty at Vanderbilt. We have um, a pretty good sized research group where we study lung development and lung disease with a focus on preterm birth. And we have some mouse models where we that we use to study this. Um, we have a lot of different techniques that we're using. So yes, it's a huge passion of mine. It's, um, I would say there's never been a more hopeful time to be a neonatologist and to be a lung biologist. I think a lot of the technologies that hopefully we'll talk about in a little bit, um, are leading us to think that really help is on the way that we are getting close to identifying some molecular modulators that might provide a lot of promise, um, for the pulmonary hypertension that's associated with chronic lung disease. Well, no, that sounds very hopeful and reassuring. I'm, I'm happy to hear that. So uh, please tell us a little bit about some of these um, new therapies uh, potentially on the horizon. Sure. One of the things that I'll talk about at NeoHeart is how um, work really led by a postdoc in our lab, Alice Hackett, who's a, who's a pediatric cardiology fellow. And so we, we mimic what happens to preterm babies, we use a mouse model, and mice are a really helpful model for this disease. We expose them to hyperoxia and inflammation. Mm -hmm. And what we find is that in this model, um, Alice has been able to do echocardiograms of the mice, and that these mice, they recover and they survive, but they go on to have pulmonary hypertension. And so we started to think, um, what what is driving some of this impaired vasculogenesis at the molecular level? And so one of the ways that we've gone about looking at this is using a technology called 
single cell RNA sequencing or single cell RNA-seq. And what this does, so RNA, messenger RNA is the is a marker of what genes are being transcribed, or as I say, it's a marker of how cells are behaving at a particular moment. So we wanted to understand first the normal processes. So we made this atlas of lung development, um, which can actually be found on our website, sucrelab.org slash lung cells. It's fr- all of our data is freely searchable and open to the public. And so people, all you need to know, the only computational thing you need to know is how to spell the name of your gene and you can look it up. So one of the cells we focused on was in that alveolus, in that unit of gas exchange, there are um, a few key important cells. There are these type 2 pneumocytes that make surfactant, those big blocky cuboidal cells. There are these thin type 1 cells that are the unit of gas exchange. And those very thin, beautiful type 1 epithelial cells form and recruit these endothelial cells or these vascular cells that are very specialized. And the ones in the alveolus are like no other vascular cells in the lung. And so we said, well, why are they special? Because they, when we look at them, when we look at all of the single cell data, we make clusters by what cells are doing the same thing. So you could think about how you might cluster the people in a town by their job. So if you were to look at a whole town, you might see a cluster of teachers and a cluster of firemen and a cluster of doctors. When we look at the single cell level, depending on how detailed, you could look at a cluster of teachers and then you could say, well, but maybe the elementary school teachers do something different to the high school teachers or the math teachers do something. So you can look by what the cells are doing to define their identity as a cell. And so in these very special alveolar capillary cells, which some people call ACAPs because that's very catchy, um, they make something called apelin. And that's, um, apelin is a hormone that has been, so we looked, we said, okay, well, they're making apelin normally. What, what are they doing in injury? And so when we looked in injury, we saw that the apelin is really decreased. So um, we then looked also, we have human single cell sequencing from babies who have died with and without lung injury. And we saw that even in humans, this aplin, this mystery hormone, what is it doing? It appears that that's also decreased. Um, And sometimes we find something that we think is new and it's really not new if you go back Mm. in the literature. And so if you look in other rodent models of adult lung injury and adult hypertension, they also report that they think that aplin may be protective or may promote normal lung growth. So one of the things... um, and there's a lot of other details about how we've characterized this with microscopy and spatial transcriptomics and looking at all of these ways. But the really exciting take-home point is that right now, um, Alice Hackett is doing a clinical trial in mice in our lab to give Aplin to see if giving Aplin can help, you know, right that ship. So there's mm. preterm birth is an insult to the lung. And generally, the lung pauses or arrests development. And so we think that aplin may be a really promising drug that could help um, restore normal lung growth after preterm birth. And, you know, I think with, um, I've been focused on lung growth after injury for a long time, but I think in the setting of COVID, it really highlighted to everyone that repairing the lung after injury is something that all of us think about. So a lot of what we're looking at in babies, you know, 
I say babies aren't um, just small adults, but a lot of adults are just big babies. So it might be that these therapies that we're finding in the laboratory could have implications beyond even just prematurity. It's funny how we're trying, I mean, you're mentioning Aplin and we're almost trying to use it as an aging <laughs> hormone to try to get the lungs to grow to their full mm -hmm. maturity uh, in a world where anti-aging is, is uh, really the holy grail. <laughs> yeah, I would say what we see in the lung is a little bit of, um, so when the lung forms those three kinds of cells, that epithelial cells, the supporting mesenchymal cells, and the endothelial cells, they actually mature at slightly different rates. And okay. what we're finding is that injury creates this arrested or almost backwards lung development. And you get this time misalignment of mm -hmm. with, and it doesn't affect every cell the same way. And so trying to, you know, mature some of these cells or to promote, you know, really restore that normal growth program seems really important. And I'm wondering, so since, you know, premature birth in and of itself is kind of the first hit, um, do you envision in the future this is theoretically something we could give all preterm babies or the babies that prove themselves to be having more uh, difficulties um, from a lung perspective? It's a really good question. I think, um, you know, the, the earlier in gestation, the greater the risk of chronic lung disease. And so, Babies at 23 weeks almost all have some degree of lung of lung disease, whereas babies at 30 weeks, you know, only about 20% of them. So I would say it would depend on the age, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, the only other drug kind of like this that has been shown to help with lung growth is vitamin A. Mm -hmm. And so we give vitamin A to all preterm babies under a certain gestational age. And so I think that that would be really um That's one way to think about how we might use Aplin. Um, you know, we haven't looked yet at like Aplin metabolites or Aplin um, to see are there ba are there babies who would be responders versus non-responders. Um, the other sort of part I won't be talking about at NeoHeart, but that's really fascinating to me is we focus a lot. I think as physicians, we're trained to focus on pathology. But the other thing that we're really interested in the lab is studying resilience So the 24-weeker with who develops with really normal lungs should be just as fascinating to us as the baby with severe lung disease because there is something about them that is incredibly resilient. And so we're looking for those things as well. So what are the genetic markers of resilience? What are the, um, were there, you know, perinatal factors that are associated with resilience? Are there factors about the mom or the placenta or something that made that baby so strong so mm -hmm. those are the other things we're looking at too yeah this is quite interesting um how do you perceive i mean we're having already such a hard time enrolling patients for interventions that might be beneficial um do you think we're going to encounter difficulties in 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 consenting families to study babies who are doing well um so some of the studies we do of babies who are doing well involve things like using, you know, if we've sent blood to the lab, could we have a little bit that's left over? So we don't take anything extra. I find that um, uh, the parents of preterm babies are truly special individuals because they've already embarked on a journey to parenthood that's different than typical. And 
you know, being in the neonatal ICU, we take away a lot of the normal, at least initially, parental instincts to protect, to feed, all those things. And I find that the parents of our patients are truly inspiring. They generally want to do everything they can to help their own child, but also to make life a bit easier for the next family that's in their shoes. And Mm -hmm. so um, I think because we're not asking for anything extra or invasive or painful, we're just asking for a little bit of leftover blood or to be able to look at the medical record and kind of put that data together. Really, we're doing a lot of data analysis on their children that um, is not actually touching the baby itself. Mm-hmm. Right. That's it's a good enough. question. I think the next question you bring up that's sort of in your question is how do you ever do a clinical trial in babies? And I think that that becomes really, um, there are a lot of ethical challenges in that. And so I think this is why doing things really rigorously and, and investment um, on the part of the NIH and the public and preclinical work in the laboratory really provides a lot of foundation to make sure that before a drug ever touches a human baby, it's really, really safe. Uh-huh. Um, I'm glad that you guys are talking about parents because actually as we're wrapping up, my last question for you is a, is a truly a practical one. Um, I know you like to teach and I wonder when you um, are explaining pulmonary hypertension to families, um, what is the terminology uh, you use? I can tell you like to use analogies. And so I'm interested to say how, how, how do you introduce the concept of pulmonary hypertension, which is complicated for sure. even us as physicians um, to families who have no medical background? Sure. Um, I talk about, I start with the baby's heart. And I say that we, we think about the heart as having two sides. So there's a left side that pumps heart to the body. There's a right side that um, pumps blood to the lungs. And generally, the lungs have a lot of vasculature, and they're a very low pressure system. And so the right heart is not as muscular, and it doesn't have to work so hard. And so when and in general, usually by the time we're making a diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension, we've been talking about the lungs for a long time. And so I'll talk about how their baby's lungs are underdeveloped. And so they have fewer of these units for gas exchange. And that when we think about pressure on that side of the heart, it's really determined by the diameter of the hose. And so we, we sort of sum the diameter of all the hoses all the vessels in the lung. And if there are fewer of them, I say it's sort of like if you've ever played with a water hose with your kids or with your siblings. And the way to make that water come out under pressure is to put your thumb over half of it. And you really will get a nice hard jet, you know, if you're trying to, um, I don't have a brother. So I'll say, if you're trying to get a brother in the eye, right there. Um, I would have never done that to my sister. Never, never. <laughs> so um, what's happening then is that if you don't have enough vessels that form, you can end up with a higher pressure system. And that over time, when the vessels see higher pressure, you get into a cycle where vessels that see higher pressure develop more muscle to deal with that pressure. And then you get a thicker right ventricle because that heart's working hard, like all muscles. You know, if you keep um, if you keep pumping them, they will get thicker and harder. And also the vessels in the lung can go on to have permanent remodeling. So a lot of the treatments we try to do in the NICU and the reason why we screen for pulmonary hypertension at 36 weeks is that 
it often doesn't have any symptoms until the heart's in failure. And so one of the reasons, so it can be hard to tell someone, your baby looks great, but when we look on the inside, we're seeing this high pressure, but we want to intervene now so that your baby doesn't start struggling to breathe. Mm-hmm. So that's, I use a water hose analogy, but I, I grew up in Florida, so we had a lot of sprinklers, water <laughs> that's hoses. Right. That's right. All those that's things. Right. Um, my last question to you, uh, Jennifer, is is related to the optimism that you shared with us at the beginning of the episode. And I wanted to know in your estimate, um, all this translational work that is currently being done, how far away are we to seeing something uh, arrive to the bedside? Um, and I'm just curious because I think we're all very excited and, and sometimes it's hard to understand all the, the steps that it would take to get to a finished product. And so I'm just wondering if you have Uh, any uh, sense as to how long that would probably take? So the best way to be wrong is to make a prediction, but that won't stop me. I'll go for it. Um, I think that, you know, recognizing that the work we do really stands on the shoulders of real giants in the field of lung biology. And we're um, committed to training the next generation of giants that come behind us. And so I think my hope would be in the next 10 years, Um, but that, and that hope, you know, that seems really reachable to me in terms of looking for targeted therapies, all of these tools that I've told you about in terms of single cell transcriptomics, um, human genetics, personalized medicine, looking for responders and non-responders, recognizing that BPD and pH is not just one disease, but looking for what, who would be the responders to a clinical trial. Uh Um, and I think that we're, Um, you know, I think that's all assuming continued sustained investment um, from the NIH and issues like this. And so my hope would be in about 10 years, we, I would say that um, I would feel like my career and my life's work had made a real difference if we could start offering a therapy to real babies at the bedside. And um It might not, you know, I think it's really important to view your own work critically. And so it may be that this pathway that we're really excited about right now, Applin, is not the right pathway. And so I think you have to have a healthy skepticism about your own work. So it may be that the work that we're doing, that we find something else. And so you often have a lot of, you know, you run into blind alleys before you before you find your way out Uh of labyrinth. And so I think that will, um, you know, I'm excited about this, but I'm really, I want to make sure that we see what the data are in the mice and we see what the data look like in humans um, and go from there. So I, I guess I have skeptical optimism, skeptical optimism. I think that's fair. And I think that's fair. And I think, and I think we'll find something, but I would say, I think the minute you try to prove something in your own laboratory, you've lost. And so we really embrace deeply the theory of multiple working hypotheses. And so we try to do, scientific experiments where even if our hypothesis is wrong, the answer is still interesting and exciting. And so mm-hmm. with that, we try not to introduce bias into the way we're thinking about our data, the way people are, you know, handling the mice, all of those things. So we, um, we never try to prove anything, but we just try to ask questions in such a way that the answers are interesting either way. Love it. (laughs) What else can we say? That's awesome. (laughs) Well, um, this was phenomenal. Uh, We appreciate your time, Dr. Sucre. um, Yeah, like you said, it's it's nice to know as well. Just like we tell parents 
the order of magnitude of how long their baby might stay in the NICU. It's nice to know the order of magnitude when it comes to this kind of work to say like, well, I should, I should potentially see, see something within, within my career. Or if you're a year or two away from retirement, maybe you say, well, it's not going to be, I'm not going to get to, uh, to try these, these new uh, modalities. But regardless, this is uh, fascinating. We're going to obviously link to uh, your website slab on the episode page and uh, encourage our listeners to go follow your work. Um, thank you for making the time today and uh, best of luck on your future work. Thanks so much for having me. It's awesome to talk to you guys and really encourage anyone to reach out to us. Um, we're always looking for postdocs, students, anyone to come work with us and collaborators around the world. So, Yeah, and we'll, we'll I think uh, we'll add that to our page as well, but you have all these contact informations on your page as well. So you're, you're easy to find. Careful what <laughs> you, you ask for. <laughs> exactly. Thank you for listening to the Incubator Podcast. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at NICUPodcast or through our website at www.the-incubator.org. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care professional. Thank you.